0: Just prior to the time that Jesus spoke these words, you remember that he had just made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, as we picture, as it were, the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the greatest one that ever lived, the one that was destined from his very birth to be the Lamb of God and be sacrificed for the sins of the world, the one who would be king would come riding in Jerusalem on the back of a colt of a donkey. You could just imagine how incensed they were when Jesus would overturn the tables of the money changers and say, that my house, he says, for it is written, he quoted the word of God, he said, for it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And you remember as they came to Jesus, no doubt they wanted to I, I know that they didn't uh, they didn't really think that Uh, Or they they were actually not looking to Jesus as giving the, the proof. In other words, give us the proof by which you say the things you do so we can follow you. I don't think that's exactly what they were saying. I think what they were saying is go ahead and speak the very blasphemous words that you're from God and give us a reason that we might kill you. And so they came to Jesus and they said, Tell us by what authority thou doest these things and who gave you that authority. But Jesus responded again, as he did in so many times, in parabolic drapery. He begins by giving the parable in just a moment of the two sons. But prior to that, he said this. He says this to them. He says, I'll answer your question. That's not a problem. Just answer one of mine. The baptism of John. Was the baptism of John from heaven or was the baptism of John of man? And the Bible says that they discussed the matter. You know, I don't know if they, if they separated themselves from those that were standing there, those chief priests and elders and scribes and Pharisees and all that would be in attendance. I don't know how many were pulled aside at that point in time because the Bible doesn't say. All we know is they discussed the matter and they came to the conclusion this is a lose-lose proposition. Because if we say that the baptism of John was from heaven... They knew that Jesus Christ right then and there would have looked them dead straight in the eye and convicted them by saying, if you knew it was from heaven, why didn't you listen to him? Why didn't you obey his teaching, the voice of one crying in the wilderness? But then they knew if we said it was from man, they feared the people. You know that phrase, they feared the people? When I think about that, I think about two choices that it could be. Number one, they feared the people that might do something to them bodily or harm them because the Bible says in in Matthew's account that all considered John to be a prophet. So as we look at that, maybe they were saying that they feared the people because of, of the fact that they might inflict bodily harm upon them. But I think really, if you examine their hearts, I think there's something else that makes more sense. I think they feared their standing. They didn't want to lose their elite status among the people. They didn't want to lose that because they knew that so many people considered John to be a prophet. That if they would say, oh no, it's not from heaven, it is man-made, it is wrong, it is something that some man dreamed up one day. I think they feared the people with the standing that they may have in society. You know, when you're respected, if you're respected in life because of things that you've accomplished or things that you have done or whatever status that you have, it causes you also to realize that you need to be careful that you're not puffed up with pride. If we ever feel like we can never accept that we make a mistake or if we ever get to the point that we fear our status or our standing, that we don't make changes when we know we need to make them. Because we don't want to lose our status or our standing among the people. Be careful because we are then puffed up with pride. And the Bible says that pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. You know, I'll tell you something, folks. Pride is going to get, mo- get most of the people, I think. Pride is going to be the source of getting most of the Christians that fall and don't make it to heaven one day. It's going to be pride. God hates pride. In fact, Jesus, you remember, would give that very idea. He said, if you're going to lift yourself up, you're going to be brought down. But if you will humble yourself, and incidentally, that doesn't mean I hate myself and go in the corner and just wither away. That's not what that's talking about. And I'm going to tell you something. Hating yourself is not a biblical principle. And that's not what's being said. It means this. I'm going to take myself and move it aside because someone else or something else is more important than I am. It doesn't make me a rotten person to go migrate into the corner somewhere. Pride got the devil, the Bible says. Pride got the devil and got him and a third of the host of heaven cast out of heaven a long time ago. So Jesus then gives the parable of the two sons. It's very important because he's giving the parable of the two sons to correct or to condemn the fact that they didn't listen to John the Baptist. That's number one. He gave this one for another reason, but just a moment on that. But first of all, that little short parable. He gives the parable of the two sons. He says, there's a man, and this man owns a vineyard, and he's got two sons. You know, parents can almost see this happening. And you tell them both to go out into the vineyard and go to work. The first one says, I'm not going. But later he repents and he goes. Jesus said, then there's a second son. And that son, he says, I'll go. But then he doesn't. Jesus asks them the question, which one of these two did the will of the father? And what could they say? They said, well, the first, the first did the will of the father. And Jesus responded by saying, verily, I say unto you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes or harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Why, Jesus? Why is that? Look at the next verse. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you believed him not. But the publicans, tax collectors, harlots, prostitutes, believed him, and ye, when you had seen it, repented not afterward that you might believe him. And so he condemned them in that short little parable. And isn't it interesting that Jesus lays it out to them so that they have to actually answer the question themselves? He's going to do this with this parable too. I love the sermons that Jesus preached. Don't you just love the sermons? You know when we're learning how to teach when we're young? Sometimes we choose the parables because they seem simple. But then when you get older and you keep studying them, you realize, oh, wait a minute. There is a ton of meat in those passages. The thing is, the reason that it's like that is because Jesus, and if you want to know, if you want to know the picture of a good speaker, here it is. If you want to know the criteria or an example of the greatest teacher that ever lived, it's Jesus. Take something that may be difficult and make it sound as simple as he did. And this is what he said. He basically, as he did so many times, in essence is saying this. Come here, I want to tell you a story. He said there was a householder. This was a landlord. And he said this householder, he has a vineyard. I don't know if he bought the piece of ground with the vineyard in it, but he prepared the vineyard perfectly. It's got every single characteristic and every single thing that is needful to be successful in being in the grape industry or the vineyard business. Notice in verse 33, Jesus says, here another parable, there was a certain householder or landlord or landowner which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to the husbandmen and went into a far country. Now notice, this man's got a vineyard and he prepares it perfectly. It's first class all the way. He builds a hedge around it for protection against animals. He builds a tower in the middle of it so somebody could be in that tower and make sure that man doesn't come at the time of harvest and steal what is in the vineyard. There's a wine press. A wine press, very interesting. You know what a wine press is? A two-layered, you know, I've tried to picture in my mind. I wish I could see a picture, but I know it's two-layered. And scholars say it was either dug out of the ground and lined with stone Or it was actually dug in the stone, but it was two layers, and the two layers, one on top of the other, it was connected by an orifice that basically allowed the things of the top to go through. But it was small enough that only the juice from the grape could go down through the orifice and be taken in that vat. You know, every time I think about stepping on grapes, I can't help but think about that episode of I Love Lucy when they were stomping around in the the grapes. You know, I just can't imagine that, people putting their feet on grapes. But what they did is they laid the grapes in the tray of the upper part of this vat. And when they would walk on it, it would crush the grape and the juice would run down. It was perfect. It satisfied their every need. And Jesus says that he gave it, or he rented it out or he let it out to someone called husbandmen. And the husbandmen basically were the laborers. And these were, these were those that would actually go and do the work that's found in the vineyard. Now, here's the deal the landowner goes away. In fact, Luke's account says he goes away, and it's the only account, you can find this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but Luke's the only one that recognizes any particular time frame. And Luke says that the householder goes away for a long time. But here's the deal. These husbandmen were allowed to work in the vineyard. They were allowed to reap all the benefits and privileges of the vineyard. They were allowed to be right in it just as if it was their very own. But they owed the householder something. And the householder needed to get his share of the rent. Rent was paid by way of product. Are you getting the picture here? Those that were working, the husbandmen or the vine dressers, they needed to pay their rent by giving fruit or giving the things that came from their crop to the landowner. Simple, isn't it? That's a simple thing. Got a tower, nobody's gonna steal from you. Got a hedge, animals won't destroy. Got a perfect vineyard, everything is fine. Landowner's leaving you alone, landowner departs for a long time. All that's required is pay the rent. Pay your rent. That's it. What do these things represent, though? The householder represents, obviously, God. The vineyard represents, you know, sometimes vineyard is described, is used in describing Israel, but not necessarily Israel per se in this text, in this passage. The vineyard here represents the special privileges that were given to Israel. Thirdly, the husbandmen. Those were the ones that were the physical leaders of Israel. The priests, the scribes, the elders, and all that would follow. In other words, the husbandmen was the physical nation of Israel. But then there was the servants. And the servants were the ones that came to get the rent. They represent the prophets. More on that later. And finally... The son represents Jesus. This is God. This is the special privileges given to Israel. This is the physical nation of Israel, the people, all included therein. The servants are the prophets of God, and the son is Jesus Christ. Now our little story. This is what Jesus says. After a time went by, the householder sent servants back to collect their shares. To collect their portion or their part of the fruit that was rightful to the landowner. And the Bible says that when they got there, they didn't pay. They not only didn't give what was rightful to the householder and keep their agreement, but they brutally mistreated those servants. They killed one. They beat one and they stoned another. And in verse 36, again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto him likewise. I want you to picture this. Some of you own homes. Some of you rent places. I want to draw the analogy. If you're renting a house, apartment, whatever it is, can you imagine if... A person that worked for the landlord came to you and says, it's time to give your share of the rent. How would it be if you beat that person physically or killed yet another or stoned a third? Do you think for one minute, now get this, do you think for one minute that the landlord is going to say, well, maybe they're just having a bad day. I'm going to give them another chance. If it was in the flesh and if it was you or I, you know what you'd be doing? The very first time that they did something like that, you would call the police, the authorities, and because that is a crime. They were committing a crime. You think you're going to have mercy for them? You're going to protect yourself. If you have other servants, you're going to protect them and not want them to go and spend any time there. But Jesus says that the Husbandmen sent even more, or the householders sent even more. And the same thing happened to them. Luke's account says they were shamefully entreated. These were wicked people. Not only did they beat them and kill them, but they shamed them. You can only imagine the landlord or what it would be today. I'm going to tell you what this landowner did. He got to thinking and he said you know surely these people surely these people have something inside for me still certainly these people certainly if they think about me at all if they honor me at all if they respect me at all even the in the least they're gonna respect my son and they're gonna reverence my son and so he sends his son to go and collect I'm gonna tell you something that takes That takes somebody that is capable of doing things that you and I are not. That's the picture of God. That's the picture of God's love for man. Man has messed up over and over and over and over and over again. They were wicked. They beat those prophets of God. They killed them. They stoned them. Time will not permit us to go into that, but what you can do is, in your own time, you can look at 2 Chronicles 36 and then also Matthew 23 and verse 37 about the very idea of what we're talking about. The servants of God or the prophets were persecuted, beaten, and killed, and mistreated, and shamed, by the workers in the vineyard, by the people. Surely if I'll, I'll, I got one more idea, I'll send my son. And if there's any bit of respect left inside for me at all, they're going to respect my son. You know, if I own a business, and I have a son, and he works in the business, you know, the other people that work in there too, they may not like it, but at least they're going to act like they respect the son. They're going to at least go through the motions like they're going to respect the son. Why? Because their father owns the the business. The father writes their paycheck. You would think that's exactly what these people would do, but that's not what they did. And the Bible says when the son got there, they looked upon the son. And you know what they said? They didn't say, oh, here he comes. Let's respect him. They said this. There he is. There's the heir. Let's kill him. Why? Why? So we can own the vineyard. Do you see the progression there? Look at the progression of their crime. It all started by not giving the fruit or the rent that was rightful to the landowner, their landlord. Then it began by persecuting and even physically attacking the servants of the landlord. Because they didn't want to pay. Then when the son came, they said, we'll kill the son so we can have it all will kill the son so we can own the vineyard, and no longer will we be just plodding along as tenants. When the Lord, therefore, the vineyard comes, this is what Jesus asked. What will he do unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, he will miserably get this now. This is their response. He turns it back on them like he did with the parable of the two sons. He asks them a question, a question where there's only one answer. And Jesus says, well, when the landowner comes back, what's he going to do to those people that did so, to the servants of that landowner and even his son? The response was, he will miserably destroy those wicked men. You know what else he's going to do? He's going to take this, what they said, he's going to take the vineyard away from these husbandmen, and he's going to give it to somebody else who's going to appreciate it and give it to someone else That is going to give the householder his rent, his fruit. God has always demanded payment and fruit. Now when we talk about payment regarding salvation, there's nothing that I can do in my life that's going to be worthy of what Jesus did for me. There's nothing that I can do in my life that's going to be good in terms of earning my way to salvation. We are saved by grace, that's true, but we fall from grace when we don't work. And the works that we must do is when we bear fruit for his name and his cause. Obedient works. The Lord has always demanded obedience. And he still does today. Jesus says, what's going to happen to these people? He said, the Lord's going to come back. He's going to destroy those wicked people. He's going to give the vineyard to somebody else. You know, it was said that they were looking at this parable like, well, that really couldn't happen. That's really not going to happen. But notice what Jesus says in the next verse, verse 42. He says, didn't you never read the, read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. You know what Jesus was saying? Jesus says, oh yes, this makes sense. Yes, this is true. And didn't you read the scriptures? Haven't you read the prophecy? Haven't you looked at these things before? He said this, Jesus said, look to the scriptures. The stone that the builders rejected is made the headstone or the chief of the corner. Who is the headstone or the chief stone or the cornerstone? It's the son, it's Jesus. And Jesus was going to do something great. He was, as God used, Jesus as the cornerstone. He was gonna build something else. Now the builders, the builders, the religious elite of yesterday under the law of Moses, they rejected the stone. They rejected Christ. Picture it like this. If you build something, build a block wall, you have bricks any kind of anything you're building a structure you have building materials what do you do what you do is when you want it to look really nice and pretty you start sorting through the materials you want oh this is a good one this is a really good one i like the color of this one this one over here all oh, this one will go oh this one is unsightly it doesn't belong in the structure at all so what happens you take that one and you scrap it you throw it aside and you don't plan on using it Jesus said, God has chosen the one that the builders rejected and threw off to the side, not only to be part of the structure, not only to be part of the building, but he'll be the very foundation of it. All will be built from him. And without him, the structure will not be built at all. Ladies and gentlemen, obviously, he's talking about the church. He's going to build the church. and he's going to join Jew and Gentile together alike if they'll come in obedience. In 1st Peter chapter 2 beginning in re- reading in verse 4, let me hurriedly read this. To whom coming as unto a lively stone disallowed indeed of men but chosen of God and precious ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ Wherefore, also, it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, Jesus, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believeth, he's precious. But unto them that are disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a a chosen generation. Ye are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, get this, but are now the people of God. The Gentiles at first at one time were not a people, but now they're the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Why? Because of the son that the builders rejected. The son that the builders rejected. Jesus, the Lamb of God, because of him, we have hope today. Because of him, we have privileges today. Therefore, verse 43 now, say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to the nation which brings forth fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him into powder. You know, I'll tell you, this is an amazing parable. Because when we look at it, when we look at this parable that Jesus gave a long time ago, it seems so easy for us to understand. But what about them that day? The Bible does declare and describe that they, there were those that did understand. In fact, they're going to really be angered by that. And they want to lay their hands on Jesus, but they don't because they fear the people. There's that phrase again. Whatever that means, either physically or their status or standing or whatever. But you and I look at that today and we're so glad and grateful. Isn't that the greatest privilege of all, that we have the word of God? Isn't that the greatest privilege of all? We can go to the word of God. We can prove and test everything by the word of God. What a great blessing that is. Quickly now, and then I'll be through, I'm going to apply this parable now. God often bestows wonderful privileges to his people. This was done with the nation of Israel. Like a precious vineyard planted Israel in Canaan. Blessed the nation with laws. God blessed them with priests and prophets and other spiritual privileges. Eventually, he sent his only begotten son to be the Messiah and save them from their sin. And what they had to do is, all they would have had to do is live faithfully under what God would have to say and be faithful unto death And even though Jesus hadn't come yet, when Jesus goes to the cross, his blood would run back and cover their sins too if they were righteous by their obedience to God. Oh, privileges. All that God has done. But what about us today? What about us today? Has God not given us privileges? God gives us privileges as we live in this life. He's given us the privilege of forgiveness of sins. He's given us the privilege of the Word of God. He's given us all the blessings that we share in Christ. He gives us the privilege of being able to assemble with those of like precious faith and be built up in the most holy faith and hear the Word of God. And you know what's wonderful about that? You know what's great about that? Do you realize that today not because it's me, but do you realize that today when we've assembled here at this place to study this word, that we get to come in contact with something that the prophets would have loved to know about but couldn't. Don't you feel special? You get to come and hear things that the people of old would have loved to hear and know, but we're not able. We've been given the blessings of being able to worship and honor God. Is there anything in your life that's more important than honoring God? I want you to picture this. They were wicked. They were horrible. But don't forget, the first thing they did wrong is they didn't bear fruit to the Master. God expects fruit? Could it be said, as it was taken away from them, could it be said that of us, that the privileges and the blessings are taken from us because we didn't bear fruit, because we didn't obey? One of the things that comes up in Bible study a lot is what does God expect from me Have you ever thought that? What does God really expect from me? comes up an awful lot. God expects from you the same thing He expects from me. He expects everything you got. That's a growth process because guess what? If you obey the gospel today, the things that you can do that are your very best today, they'll be nothing compared to what you'll be able to do in a year if you grow the things that you'll do in a year. Don't even compare to what you'll be able to do in 10 years if you continue to grow. God wants fruit. God wants results, meaning our obedient life. And he wants us to do our very, very best. We can do that, can't we? Look what God has done for us. Look what he did for Israel. They shirked him. They sloughed him off. They didn't obey. They rejected his son and killed him on the cross. What about us? What about us? When the doors are open midweek, do we come and hear the word of God? We get a chance to hear something that those of old would have loved to know about. And I tell you this, if you don't do that, you're missing out studying the word of God in the context that it's written I just wonder this you remember what happened when the servants came one phrase Luke talks about this three times Luke's account he sent them away or the hus- those husbandmen sent them away empty handed when the Lord comes for fruit are we constantly sending him away empty handed When Jesus wrote to the seven churches of Asia in the book of Revelation, he talked about the identity of those that would be the children of God. He said on a number of occasions, I know your works. I know your works. I know all about it. But then he tells them to do something else, go back to your first love. He says, if you don't do that, I'm going to take away your candlestick. I'm going to take away your identity. That's a Christian principle too, not just in days of old. Wouldn't it be awful to have our identity taken away? One more thing and I'll be through, you've been a wonderful audience, just one more thing. Do You know why I think sometimes we try to get away with things? I'm talking about in life and in society, you know why we do that? Because we think that there's going to be some do-over. We think there's going to be a, in a golf terminology, you're going to get a mulligan. You're going to get to hit another ball you're going to get to do over again. You're going to be able to get, like society has, dream teams of lawyers to get people that are guilty off. The reason that crime is as rampant as it is in this country is because there's always a loophole. There's always something that wants to give all of this, uh, all of these rights to the person that commits the crime. So much so that even if they're dead to rights and wrong, If the people investigating make one mistake, and it didn't change whether they were right or wrong, it just, their mistake, the person goes free. So in their mind, there's a loophole. You remember that illustration I gave you years ago about Singapore, about the drug laws in Singapore? If you're you're caught with drugs in Singapore, you know what they do? They kill you. Guess what? No drug problems in Singapore. There was another place, I don't remember the place, wish I did, that I read about. That if a man goes out and drinks and gets in a car and drives that car with alcohol in his body, and he gets uh, driving under the influence of alcohol, a DUI, he gets life in prison, but it gets better. Guess who gets to go with him? His wife. Guess what? No drinking problems in that place. Because crime is not deterred by the severity of the punishment. Crime is deterred by the surety of it. If we think that we can live our life any way that we can and that maybe God will change his mind one day and forget about all the fruit that he's demanded of me and forget about all the the obedience he's demanded of me and God's going to just maybe down the road change his mind, Think again, folks. I'm not answering for God. My dad used to say, you know, God can do whatever he wants to. He's got all the votes. That's true. God can do whatever he wants to. I just know what he said. I know what he's done. The question is, will I obey him? Or will I live in such a way that it will be taken from me and given to someone else that will bear the fruit thereof?